Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins, and I'm looking at Associate Professor Carissa Cooney. Hi, Carissa. Hi, Kim. Well, everyone, you're going to want to take a listen to Carissa Cooney's recent podcast, episode number 224. It was entitled Evolving Personally and Professionally to Maintain Job Satisfaction. And Carissa did such a great job that you'll love listening to that one, especially because I don't talk in it at all, which will be a relief for so many of you. Carissa reviews, she synthesized information and all this wisdom from three books, three separate books. And I'm not going to tell you anything else about that other than you're going to want to check it out. So Carissa, again, is an associate professor here at Johns Hopkins. She's a math, has a master's in public health and is a CCRP, which is a certified clinical research professional. And Carissa is also the director of education innovation and a clinical research manager in the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, again, here at Hopkins. And Carissa is a wealth of expertise, very beloved in the Department of Plastic Reconstructive Surgery because she has the wonderful gift of being able to take complex information and distilling it to diverse audiences. She gets lots of great feedback and um, recommendations and testimonials from people who learn from her. She just she did a great grant writing presentation and we are really taking a, um, some good advantage of Carissa and her her wisdom here at Hopkins, and she has been so gracious to share all her, her skills with us. And then also, when I started learning more about her, invited her back to the Faculty Factory podcast. So today, Carissa, you're going to share with us something that you said you've been noticing the past seven or eight months now. Tell us what that is, and then lead us into it. Yes, well, thank you very much for this opportunity. And I, I would like to just point out that a lot of the uh, quote unquote wisdom that I share is um, from, you know, trial and error that I have uh, personally experienced. So um, anything I can do to share my uh, failures and recoveries to help prevent other people from falling into those ditches, um, I'm glad to do that. So, but um, the one of those patterns that I've been noticing, I mentor a lot of students. I have um, over 40 pre and postdoc mentees who've graduated from you know my research group at this point um, is a real change from a pre to post or pre to peri COVID pandemic in mentoring. Um, there's just been I've heard a lot of other faculty talking about this. I've seen this myself, and so just wanted to help uh, talk about what's going on in case people aren't familiar with um, some real things that are impacting medical students right now. Um, and how I'm perceiving them dealing with it, my colleagues are perceiving them dealing with it, and then hopefully provide some tips on how to, um, you know, head these misunderstandings that may come out of this, head them off at the pass. And so, um, yeah, one of the things uh, with medical students in particular is there are some uh, pretty big changes that have been happening with the uh, training landscape that have come out of, you know, these uh, having to move to a virtual environment for teaching and learning um, versus, you know, all this in-person learning that they had been doing prior to COVID-19. And I would dare say a lot of us who are now on faculty did not train during the COVID-19 pandemic. So most of our experience is in a pre-pandemic environment. Um, and so one major change that happened recently is uh, one of the important 
tests, of course, that medical students have to take, the step one, has gone from a scoring system to a pass-fail. And so then what that has done is shifted, uh, you know, a whole bunch of emphasis and importance on the step two. Um, so switching that to a very high stakes test as opposed to splitting it up into two different, uh, you know, episodes. Um, and then what students have been doing, medical students have been doing to make up for this is try to um, augment their training in some way to further distinguish themselves. And that's particularly if they're going into a competitive specialty. So one of the ways that they do this, they'll potentially get additional degrees. Um, you know, they'll try to work in an MPH or maybe an MBA, something else they can do, you know, haha, relatively quickly in a year or two um, so that they're not prolonging their training too much, um, or at least their medical school experience. Um, and then where I see a lot of folks is, you know, people who want to distinguish themselves by doing research. The interesting thing about the research component is they're coming in and the emphasis is on volume. So quantity of publications and not necessarily on quality of publications. And then when you have like this sort of, you know, young, intelligent person who want, you know, wants to do a lot, wants to be productive, but is in kind of a panic mode because they feel like they have a very limited amount of time to distinguish themselves, um, helping them understand that we don't ask a question just because we can. We ask a research question because we want to know the answer. Um, emphasizing that and saying, well, instead of getting three publications, we may just get one, but it'll be a higher impact journal or it'll be cited more often or things like that. Um, these are the messages we got to try to, you know, better communicate with these uh, young, bright people. Yeah. Now, where do you, where do you think that message is coming from? I mean, I think this is kind of raising interesting issues about just inter intergenerational learning or differences between generations in in general. I remember when I was, you know, 20 years ago, it was, you know, baby boomers and then millennials and then Gen Xers and the whatever all the I went to a presentation where they talked about the names that had been given to these different categories or classes of people and how they're right. different and that kind of funny quips about, oh, if you're Gen Z, you know this, or you know, God forbid, try to teach a, you know, um uh I don't know, millennial, how to use a, a Betamax word, rotary dial phone or whatever, the, the kind of silly things of how we are, we grew up in different cultures. So where, where does this frenetic, maybe um, tension or anxiety about, I need more, 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 more come from, is that in general across for that generation or is it something with medical school, undergraduate medical training specifically that is imposing this sense of urgency of filling your bucket with a bunch of stuff? I, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I think it could be a lot of different things, honestly. I mean, I know we as faculty are feeling, I think, an increasing pressure to publish. And so we are probably communicating this, you know, this is like the invisible curriculum, right? Right. That we're communicating unintentionally to our learners. Wow. Um, and I think there's other things going on here, too, like the increasing rate at which we're expected to take in information. And so I think we probably feel a unspoken pressure to meet that bar. I don't know that that's appropriate, but I think that's a natural response that you potentially have to fight against in order to produce you know, better quality work. 
as yeah. opposed to I can do this. I should, I'm going to do this because I can and not because I should. Right. Yeah. Our, our colleague, Dave Usum, a neuroradiologist, our a senior associate dean for faculty professional development. He's developed a lot of courses here at Hopkins. The economics of clinical operations, ECO is one of them. But Dave and I co-teach this course. So we call it Get That Paper Out the Door. And it's the whole idea is that um, when I came up with WAGs, the writing accountability groups thing, you know, that there are basically three big reasons why um, we struggle with publishing. It's either you can't start, you don't have, you lack the, uh, you know, the initiative just to get going. So how do you get started? How do you manage your time to work on it? And then making sure you don't let perfectionism get in the way of your finishing it, just submitting it. Like it's never good, never good enough, never done, never done. I can always do more. And of course you can always do more, but Dave Usum talks about this idea of the hope diamond. So one big chunky, one big paper, the big paper that goes in cell or nature or whatever, or shaving off little bits of diamonds, making sure they're not cubic zirconia, but they're real diamonds, but that least publishable unit, right? What can you carve off to get a paper, a real paper, like you're talking right. about, not just some garbage, um, versus that, that tension of maybe the PI, the famous principal investigator at Hopkins who wants to just hang on to the data and analyze it and work and work and work for years until they get the big magnum opus. So that might be good for that big professor, but for the learners, as you're talking about, or the early faculty members, they're like, I can't afford to wait five or eight years for the big opus. I need some publications. So there's always that that tension of the big one, the big fish versus a bunch of little fish. And and I think you're real, you know, you're right, Carissa. It's the community communicating the importance of quality over quantity. And yeah, we, anybody could go look up any paper and say, oh, that's an interesting question, or that's an interesting methodology. Let me just copy and paste and duplicate that methodology or that question in 15 or 20 other fields or 15 or 20 paper, uh, different journals. And that's not science. You know, that's you may come up with a bunch of statistically significant differences, but are they substantively or meaningful differences? Right. One of the things that we frequently talk about, so, um, you know, folks during the pandemic, the kind of research that we were conducting changed a lot because at least at Hopkins, um, a lot of the uh, you know clinical research shut down because we just weren't doing as many surgeries. Um, we weren't doing it. We weren't seeing as many patients. You know, was, everything got, you know, a lot of my colleagues even got redeployed to work in COVID units. And um, so we had to rethink, well, how, what, what resources are we going to use to do research? So we ended up doing like a lot of uh, secondary analyses of pre-existing databases and um, shifting over to a lot of systematic reviews and, you know, things where there are resources out there that you can use if you can get to them. Um, and so, but the issue with like these secondary analyses of databases, databases are huge and people sometimes don't understand that when you have a huge sample size, you know, your your study is potentially overpowered, right. you're going to have a statistically significant result, but or everything, <laughs> but the information isn't clinically important, right. right? And so I think it's coming back to that base idea of, okay, fine, this might be statistically significant, but this there's no take home here. There's no, yeah. um, uh, Pearl that somebody's going to be able to, yeah, implement yeah. in their practice to improve, you know, treatment of patients or quality of care or things like that. So I think it really is, you know, trying to make sure that we have our eye on the right prize, 
Mm. Um, because I know it's easy for us to be like, oh, I got to get promoted. I, I got to do this. I got to, right. I got to get here. Like my, you know, directors pressure me to do X, um, you know, and, and that can get, you know, mm-hmm. uh, communicated back unintentionally yeah. to our mentees as well. So this, when you talk about med students these days are trying to augment their training and maybe in adding degrees um, to get MPHs or or MBAs or or what have you, is that you is that that kind of um, waiting to get into med med school or in between med school or what what is that happening? Is there some trend that you're noticing there about that augmenting the training? Yes, where's that, that happening? I am seeing folks. Um, folks will usually do a research year uh, between. Um, you know, their second and third years of medical school, that is kind of a more planned situation. Like if they discover the thing that they love and want to do earlier, you know, in in medical school. Um, But I'm also seeing some other folks who are coming to me in their MS3. And because they've discovered later, oh, shoot, I don't actually want to do orthopedic surgery. I want to do plastic surgery, for example. So then they have a bunch of research that's in ortho and they want to augment their plastic surgery research presence. um, So they'll take a year off. Um, And then after potentially doing a research year with me, I've had a couple of people say, oh, I actually having worked with you, this is so flattering. They're like, now I want to get an MPH. (laughs) I don't, I don't know what to say to them about that. I I try to talk um, realistically with them and just say, look, it's another year of your life. Training Mm -hmm. is long, like especially plastic surgery can be six or seven years, uh, depending on, I have to do a fellowship afterwards. Um, so it can be, it can be a lot, but it's, it's those competitive specialties. Like what are they, what can they do to stand out a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Distinguishing ourselves. That's interesting. It's interesting. I think I see how that parlays into even once you are a faculty member. Oh my gosh, this happens all the time when I'm talking with faculty members who say, Oh, I really, you know, I'm super busy. I have this grant and, and I'm leading this program and I'm the director for this and I'm doing that. And I've got, you know, three kids and I've got a partner and I feel like I need to get an MBA. And I'm like, yes. well, what, why? And I'm taking a leadership course and I'm the president of my professional society and, and I'm traveling now and I'm doing all this and that. And the MBA, yeah. I'm like, why, why the M- why? Well, I just feel like I need to know more about that. I'm like, well, can you maybe read a book? Can you, is it possible you could just like do an old fashioned, like just talk to somebody who knows about this? Why do you feel like you have to have the degree if you want to learn more about epidemiology? You know, you can read some articles or go to YouTube and like learn some stuff. I mean, so it's it's interesting how I feel like there's a certain, of course, a, a segment of us in society who we are just learners by nature. And so our default is, I just need another degree. I need some more letters. I need to learn more, 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 more. And unbeknownst to us, if we don't think carefully, is we get caught in that habituated cycle of always needing to needing to do, 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 do. And then we're always in that kind of pre-burnout, mid-burnout stage. And we're wondering, like, I don't know why I'm just so exhausted all the time, but we're just accustomed to just working, working, working so hard. It, it is really funny that you bring that up because I had a colleague who, I think in her mid to late 40s she was an md phd and plastic surgeon and doing what she wanted to do and working at mayo and she uh reached out to me and said hey do you think i should get an mph and i and i said oh that would that would be great you know um that person could do all this you know clinical 
quality research with you. And she's like, no, 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 I want the degree. And I'm like, why would you do that? I assumed, because she already was the package, you know, that she meant I want to get an MPH researcher to work with oh. me. So like actually getting a degree. I didn't even understand what she meant because my mind was so blown. Right. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it is. Like you, yeah. That's maybe a whole different podcast, but <laughs> so back, back to this intergenerational mentoring pre and, and post COVID. So number one is this medical student training landscape ha- has changed. I can definitely see how that changing the step one from a scoring to a pass fail is, right. you know, puts a lot of changes in the way we deliver, you know, medical school content and how we teach and how we interact. And then um, assumptions about what, learners know and are expected to know and how they're expected to know it. Um, So yeah, sorry, go ahead, continue. And then, so also, you know, so many classes had to go virtual. So there was much less in-person contact. And if you think about that, that's an important part of becoming a physician, right? Is how do you interact with your colleagues? How do you interact with your faculty attendings, you know, your your teachers? Um, If you're not able to have a uh, experience on in your clinical years on the ward or in the OR or something like this, there's a whole bunch of nonverbal communication, a whole bunch of modeling that um, quite a few of our students now who are residents um, haven't seen. And then for those of us who, you know, completed training prior to the pandemic, we're making a lot of assumptions about the knowledge base that these folks are bringing into that residency training. And so when we see someone who doesn't appear to have the same knowledge base, you know, I think we unconsciously make assumptions too, like, oh, this person didn't learn this, like what's going on? And that person is losing, you know, our entrusted ability, right? So we're trying to figure out, okay, where do we need to put this person? Like what additional skill sets do I need to, you know, teach them? And it's hard to figure out because you also don't know what, what the knowledge gap is unless you ask. Oh, that's so important, Carissa. I'm so glad you said you mentioned that and reminded us about the assumptions because everything we know in leadership and about relationships comes down to relationships. Leadership is all about communication and interpersonal communication. And a lot of that hinges on, you're so right, the assumptions we make about each other. So you're you're really raising uh, the flag that we need to test our assumptions and test others' assumptions and make sure we're all starting up at, at a home base. You're also making me think of how if we think diversity writ large, there's this intergenerational diversity too. You know, equity, diversity, inclusion, infusing diversity. The idea that there's diverse diverse co- cohorts who came from diverse backgrounds, not only from their own personal backgrounds, but a, a social historical background. So you take uh, generations that is could be wrapped up in that diversity umbrella as well, that we have a certain way of operating. And if you want to plug in any of the, of the diversity you know, challenges, we like say men versus women, Reor- if you're a man, orienting your perspective around a woman's perspective or vice versa, it's the same thing. Orient our- ourselves around post-COVID versus pre-COVID learning and cultures. So it really opens up the whole mind to diversity in its broadest, fullest sense. And doesn't all diversity stuff come down to our biases and our assumptions? So 
you're really hitting, I think, something really important. We all have to kind of take a beat before we jump into anything going forward and recognizing, especially with younger younger faculty, younger learners and trainees, wait a second, Kim, am I, let's start, back it up a second, you know? Right. As soon as you notice like sort of a disconnect, it might actually be, you know, you're making an assumption based on what your training was like and their training may have been very different. And I think something that makes this situation much more complicated is that the pandemic shutdowns were implemented very differently across the country. And so it's important to sort of understand, like, maybe you take, you know, a little stock of, okay, well, remind me, where did you do your medical school? What was the shutdown situation like? You can have a little conversation because they're also, you know, if they're coming from Texas, Texas had very different, you know, very few shutdown um, you know, implementations there. Um, I was talking with colleagues at MD Anderson and they essentially didn't shut down at all mm. versus Johns Hopkins. I mean, we were like 80, 90% shut down. So and yeah. all clinical research halted for about six months. So um, very different uh, formative environments. Yeah, just that's such a great, easy piece of advice just before the, at the initial inter- interaction how about we do like what humans used to do? Hang on a second. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Remind me. Yeah, I got your CV three months ago, but I don't remember. Um, tell me where you came from. And let me ask to tell you why I'm kind of asking you your training environment, because you may not be aware that then you go on here at, you know, Penn, this is the way we did that. So now you, everybody can go, okay, now I understand why you're asking me these questions. The learners saying, or the younger faculty member, the junior faculty, early career. And then the, mentor, instructor, more senior faculty member can get an appreciation of, all right, let's let's level up here, try to assess gaps or potential misfires so that we can appreciate where there are opportunities that we can kind of make this a good relationship versus one that we're talking over or under each other. No, for sure. So it's... um. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey uh, the last couple of years. Uh, and then some of the other things that I've noticed, and this is probably getting to more intergenerational differences, um, are just uh, changes in technology that I'm I'm sort of taking certain abilities for granted because I grew up pre-cell phone. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of the people that I am mentoring now don't know life without a cell phone. Um, and... Uh, yeah, we had a, a interesting interaction in the office recently where um, my folks have to call uh, research participants, you know, and occasionally they have to call back, but we don't really have landlines, you know, many landlines in the office anymore. And so my, the uh, trainings, the, the researchers, they all use their cell phones and they can have like a um, phone number that masks their actual personal number, but they have to give a number to call back. So my research fellow thought that all of the office landlines had the same number and didn't really understand about how uh, voicemail on the landlines works. And and so then this patient's calling me back rather than my research fellow. And I'm like, play, we're all playing phone tag in a circle and the research fellow isn't there to answer the phone. And I'm in a meeting and I can't grab the research fellow. And, and so finally I'm like, what what is exactly is happening here? And this poor research fellow confessed to me that they didn't know how to use a landline, to, at which point I just busted out laughing because what can you do? And I said, of course you don't. I'm so sorry. Let me explain how this works. Yes. And so, 
I just, I got to love my research fellow for owning that, right? So then I could understand what the problem was and we could address it. Um, but there's... But, but Carissa, kudos to you for creating a safe environment where he could admit to you because we can all think of situations where someone would say, that's the last thing I'm going to do is admit to Kim that I don't know what an SOP is. She keeps talking about SOP. Is she swearing at me? Like, what is an SOP? Why does she always scream about the SOPs? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, the acronym, Standard Operating Procedures. I'm not saying anything nasty, although maybe it is. Some people do think an SOP is nasty. But, yeah, it's so funny how in our heads, our own heads, we create all these stories and letters and numbers and symbols and meanings. And we say them a couple times, and I think, well, I've already said that twice. Surely by now you've understood that and processed that, or it's maybe in my head. And then I dare to be impatient with someone who's not getting it the way I've had it in my head forever. So it's such a great reminder to pause, and you think, but who's got time to pause? We don't have time. We don't have time. We don't have time. Well, you're going to pay for it in the end. Yes. If you don't take the time now, do you want to be annoyed now for a couple seconds? Or do you want to be repeatedly annoyed for every day or hour and week and and months going forward? Which also then bleeds through to other things, too, because now you're annoyed and you see that person. You're thinking, is this personal? What is with this guy? Why won't he know what's the deal? And then you tell yourself more and more stories and it escalates. And then you got a big explosion over something that could have been, oh, my gosh, a minute later. Here, let's stick some instructions on this landline and make sure everybody understands what that is. I mean, yeah, right? Everything relationships, communication. But I think that is really interesting because you're kind of getting into this other situation that I found myself in. Um, Generally speaking, I have uh, pretty good uh, social intelligence. Um, But I have to say there was a situation in my group that I completely missed that had been sort of on slow boil for quite some time, many months, I'm sorry to say. And because the fellows were very polite to each other, um, you know, they they actually each came to me. You know, I did little interviews to try to figure out what was happening. And um, each came to me and said, well, I don't want to throw so and so under the bus. I don't want to throw so and so under the bus. And I said, "Look, look, guys. No one's throwing anyone under the bus here. We're having a communication problem. This is totally understandable coming out of COVID where we're all talking to each other on Zoom. Um, You know, in addition to the fact that, you know, what's your preferred mode of communication? I prefer face-to-face. What's your preferred mode of communication? Well, texting, voicemail, phone call, in-person, it's all the same to me, which to me is just completely mind-blowing. But, you know, getting that out front as well because some some people think texting is um, you know brusque um, and not super friendly, and other people think if you just call someone out of the blue that you're being extremely rude. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would you know particularly when you have a situation you know if you're working together in clinical situation you need to know how is, what's the best way for us to communicate. Like if you're going to write me a book, don't text me, pick up the phone. Right. <laughs> you right. got something quick like a lab that I requested texting's fine. Yeah. yeah. I like those boundaries that make that makes sense to me. That's in that you're reminding me of something that I think we so misfire is using yeah, misusing forms of communication or treating them all equally. So the texting, the calling, the emailing, the voicemailing which hope nobody does anymore rarely. Um 
that we think that's all the same. And you're you're right. To me, nothing is more annoying than an email that you open up and it's seven paragraphs long. And embedded in those seven paragraphs are like 13 questions. And they're like, you know, get back to me. What do you think? And I'm like, well, get back to me. What do you think about all, all of this? What? It's so <laughs> dense. And then your brain goes, uh, later. So of course you right. put it later. So it's, you know, in the subject lines, you know, try to be very specific. What is it? And not like, hey, you know, here's that paper. Let me give me your feedback. That's even not good enough. Like what level of feedback are you looking for? Are you looking for grammar punctuation? Are you looking for readability? Are you looking for scientific, you know, thought process here? Do you need help with the discussion? You look and want me to look for gaps. So that as specific as you can get is helpful. At least that's what we kind of teach in our leadership programs. But even beyond that, it's the what you mentioned earlier, Carissa, the social and emotional intelligence to recognize that everybody is different and has different preferences. So as a leader, we have to understand that, try to take time. How does Carissa Cooney like to get information? How does she like to make decisions? Is she a sensor or an intuitor? Is she a thinker? Is she a feeler? And then I can figure out, okay, now that I know her and then I know myself, where might we you know, butt heads or where are we going to be smooth like butter? And then learning to calibrate or pivot our interactions or our boundaries, depending on with whom we're talking. So I, I'm this, I have different like rules, if you will, for different people. I know that one person who works on my team, she's a phone caller. That's more efficient for her. And so that's just, mm-hmm. I generally don't like phone calls, but when it's her, I know that's the most efficient way to deal with her because I've tried the ABC one, two, three specific emails, and that does not work as well as just her having to talk that out. So that's, that's totally fine. So you can have different, I imagine it's like, if you have kids, you have different rules for different kids, you know, one kid giving him a timeout to go to his room will think it's horrific and the biggest punishment ever. And other kid you send to his room might be like, that's lot. I love it. This, this is my, my joy. Uh, I'm creative and I like the solitude. So you have to learn to you know meet people where they are. So I like the way you're you're thinking about that, you know, communicating and understanding and appreciating where we mess up again based because of assumptions. But I do that. I mean, you bring up a lot of interesting points. It's it's interesting for me. It's sort of like how many text messages are into this conversation are we? And that's the point at which I'll potentially pick up the phone. But again, that's more like on a colleague to colleague level. So somebody's probably has the similar you know, feeling for phones as I do, right? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to think about this in other ways and, and still like the the residents are still sending huge texts where you have to scroll, scroll, scroll to get all the information as opposed yeah. to picking up the phone. So yes. it's, yeah, it's challenging. And then I'm, I personally am used to working with surgeons. Um, I've been working with surgeons for uh, about 15 years now or so. And so I'm trying to uh, deliver as much information as efficiently as possible. So, you know, if I'm sending a paper and I'm asking them to review it, I say, please go to page four. I've inserted a note there with the question. This is the question I just want you to answer. If you could just do that, please send it back. You know, like I'm being like, really, where can they just, you know, Insert scalpel, cut here. <laughs> Efficient. So see, Carissa, that is another beautiful example of efficiency, but you calibrating your messaging and your need for information to that audience member's sensibilities. Mm-hmm. I hope everybody heard that. You know, 
I'm trying to communicate to surgeons who do surgery, who are very adept at understanding, pinpointing, laser beam on something. So it would be a death knell to, it would be torture for you if you want to communicate with a surgeon and say, hey, let me know what you think about this. And then sending them a 42 page paper. (laughs) Yes. What? That'd be so unfair and sad and maybe comical or enraging, whatever. It's, It's not, it's inappropriate. But to some other group, I can imagine, I'm not going to make this up completely. Imagine, imagine saying, hey, sending a, a JPEG or a, a picture to an artist and saying, give me your you know, re- responses to this or your reactions. Let me know what you think about this. Someone with that kind of a, you know, a, a perspective like a, a beauty or design element or contrast or scale or scope or, you know, depth. They'd probably be able to tell you a lot because that's their the way they live is they look at maybe big big wall art and they're like yeah I absolutely understand what's going on here or or designer or HGTV now I got to put my HGTV hat on and looking at a designer of a space you would need to tell them what is that chair there they could take get a sense for that so I guess what I'm tra- you know trying to say is it taking that time to test our assumptions about the person with whom we are communicating or trying to build a relationship, assuming again, another assumption that we're trying to build a transformational relationship versus transactional. If you have no intention of dealing with this person beyond five minutes, who cares? But um, to be as as mean and and dumb as you want, because it it doesn't matter. But most of us, you know, mature people are trying to be transformative. So that does kind of like take some probing and testing our own assumptions about what this person wants and how they want it. But how do you balance that, you know, Carissa, trying to like as a leader, so those of us who are listening to the podcast and trying to, we're putting our mentor, our sponsor, our coach hats on, and we're thinking about the the trainees and the students and the postdocs and the fellows and the residents and younger faculty members. How much do we compromise? when we're trying to do this. So I'm envisioning hmm. some people going, are you kidding me? Now I got to do more. I, I have to learn no, about you know, e- emojis and I got to learn how to text using letters and emojis and things that I, is that fair? How much do you, do we compromise? Where's the line between my saying, listen, if you're going to work with me, this is what, where I, how I work best and most efficiently. If you send me like Carissa Cooney does, if you're very direct to me and send me, please look at this page. This is the thing. This is very specifically. Or do I say, well, this learner doesn't work like that. So I'm going to have to bend over backward and do a double, triple, sow cow, flip, you know, double, whatever to get that person where, where, how do you draw that line and how do you do it? Or do you think? Well, this is, yeah, this is a great question. So I think to a certain extent, some of my selection of mentees, right, is I'm self-selecting for people that I feel I'm going to be able to mentor well, right? Mm -hmm. So there's definitely some bias that I'm introducing in my sample. (laughs) Um, And so if you're in more of a situation where you don't have a choice and you, you know, you have to be mentoring these people, I think if you can uh, have have a conversation in which you compromise you know, in terms of the communication style. I, I think that that potentially can work. You know, at some point, you're going to bump into somebody who, who there's no compromising, right? Um, right? And that will definitely be challenging, in which case you want to bring in like your your um, 
program director or your you know department head or someone else to say okay i need some help here because i there's yeah. we're just at loggerheads right, um, right but but i think you know if you at least even as a leader if you demonstrate uh, a willingness to meet someone halfway i think most reasonable people are going to you know appreciate that and try to do the same that's so, good that's 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 fair that's so fair is when people can see that we are authentically trying, we are making an effort, like putting, because it's important that we have boundaries and standards, SOP, standard operating procedures. We're not going to change our whole lab to accommodate your preference right. for whatever, fill in the blank. There are certain scientific, legal, ethical, moral expectations and around how we do work here in the lab or in this clinic or in this you know, committee. And yet we appreciate that the person who is now talking to you is a fill in the blank, whatever, all the titles, degrees, you know, status, power, position, history. And therefore I'm not the keeper of all truth. You know, I, I have ownership of this grant or this project, or I lead this clinic or this thing. And yet I'm always open to new ways of thinking about things, improving and certainly communication is is imperative to the success of this project. So you demonstrate that you teach teach us, help us level up without compromising the work or the science or the responsibility that we have to steward this taxpayer money or this, you know, foundation money or this patient experience, you know. So I think that is, you know, you you hit that on the head because I'm just, I'm just always envisioning poor faculty. We're always, always asking them. It's like they have to do more, 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 more. It's always more. We never involves the fact that development say, Hey, we got great news. We've come up with <laughs> less, you know, do less, do fewer things. It's always, we'll come to this session to learn more stuff about how you can do less stuff. I mean, it's always, I think of faculty well, going, that's something else I have to learn how to do now. Are you kidding so me? <laughs> I would totally flip this and say, if you can spend a few minutes up front, just a few minutes to try to get that baseline, you know, of how this interaction is going to work, you will save yourself a world of pain downstream and time and, you know, spare yourself from having to straighten out miscommunications or huge mistakes. You know, if you don't appropriately set the expectations for whoever's coming into your lab and they're coming from a completely different environment, you know, learning academic cultural, you know, personal um, environments. I mean, that person doesn't have a chance. And here you are coming in and saying, well, I expect you to do this. Well, you never told me that. How, I don't, how, how was I supposed to get here? Um, yeah. So I, yeah, one of the things that I do, and I kind of apologize to people as I do it, but I have the same introductory uh, research presentation. I give everybody, I say, okay, you know, if you've done your, you know, IRB modules, some a lot of this will be familiar, but I cover this with everybody just to make sure everybody's on the same page, just so it's very clear, you know, like um, even looking for the dress code at Hopkins, it's very difficult to find. <laughs> I you know, didn't even so, know we had a dress code, and yeah, I never no. even thought of. See, you're 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 raising my antennae to something I would never have even considered. Again, because of my generation, I would never think that you'd have to tell someone how to dress to go to work in the world. But yeah. 
go take it. Well, well teach us, the, like what's going on because well, I can't so in the, Yeah, in the clinic space, you know, there's a different dress code than if you're in a non-clinical space. So the non-clinical space, I think it's, you know, largely up to, you know, that environment. Certainly a lab, you're going to go in with protective clothing, you know, make sure, make sure you have the PPE, the personal protective equipment that you need. But in the clinical space, basically, um, it's considered rude to show your armpits. So you're not supposed to have a sleeveless shirt. If you ha- you can wear a sleeveless shirt, but you have to have a jacket or a white coat over it, right? Um, and then another thing is the safety uh, precaution is to have closed-toed shoes. So a lot of you know women in summer would like to wear nice sandals or open-toed shoes. Well, you could do that in the non-clinical space or on a day when you're not seeing patients. But the whole idea there is if you drop a sharp. You know, you want your feet to be protected. Um, And then interestingly, I'm not sure how this is shaking out now, but at least a few years ago, there were certain places, I don't think this is true at Hopkins, but uh, ladies that wanted to wear skirts or show their legs had to wear pantyhose. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And people are saying pantyhose? What are pantyhose? There's some people going, what are pantyhose? Yeah, I'm totally dating myself with that one. But um, but it's important, you know, to bring these things up. And and then there's also there's great data behind like why you should wear a white coat. And so someone might not want to wear a white coat. But, you know, when I have these young people coming in and they look very young, they look younger all the time. Right. Um, <laughs> but I say, if you wear the white coat, you will demonstrate that you are a part of the team to the patient and they will take you more seriously, regardless of you know how old you look. Mm-hmm. Um, so great data on that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's reasons that we have these dress codes. Yeah. And I can't imagine the, the post COVID stuff where mm-hmm. I know have friends who have kids who they started off their college existence in COVID. So they were stuck at home for a year, you know, creeping up in a year and a half, never interacting. So they're sitting at home wearing sweatpants and slippers. And I, I'm, Imagine, yeah, I know. I know there are faculty here at Hopkins who've been hired, and they were hired during the quarantine t- days, where they never even went on campus. So, like, welcome to Hopkins. You know, nice living room or nice family room you've got there, and that was it. That's it, like that. Right. So, to, yeah, how do you bring someone into and then make assumptions when you never even see them? They're just like avatars. It's it's a whole different set of assumptions that we're right. making even with ourselves when people are coming back like we're assuming that all right well just back to business as usual business as normal nothing is usual we can't go back to the way we were it's all these expectations of good we've got like a session and in, in person now it's going to be just like old times and every time i go back for an old time thing it's like this is not like old times there's nothing about this that's like old times we can't forget what happened the past for three years now it's everything's different now and so and we I, can't make assumptions about the way we used to work. That's not the way we, we're never going to be that way again. No, absolutely. And I think you bring up another interesting point. You know, if you, certain people could be in a situation where they don't have the right clothes to suddenly go back to work in person, either because their weight changed during COVID or there was no to buy those clothes coming out of training or coming out of school. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, well, oh my gosh, I don't even know where to get a suit. I mean, and you yeah. know, as I'm working from home today, I have I have no comments, no positive comments for my outfits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and then the other irony there is like, I'm like, well, who cares? I remember when the COVID first happened and 
we saw our boss of Eistein for the first time, like in a hoodie. And it was kind of nice. I was like, oh, she's like a normal person. And their people are like people. And so the longer we are in the, the Zoom options and seeing people, to me, it's kind of, it's, you look past and you realize how silly, like all the weight and the importance we put, we put on. Now, I, I can obviously see this both ways. So I'll look at the, the good ways, like who cares what people are wearing? Who cares that they're, hairs in a ponytail and they got a hoodie on the brain in there is still wearing the tuxedo. The brain's a good brain. It doesn't care what clothes you put over top of it. Now, the other side of that argument is, all right. So we, if you are in the, the hospital space and I'm walking around with my hair, you know, ponytail and a hoodie and my slippers and sweatpants, it conveys a different message to patients or customers that this is perhaps not, um, a professional environment and you would right. maybe question the person you're working with who's going to wait on you if they looked like they were dirty or unkempt so you would make other assumptions that it would not give the right tone or the vibe that we want to convey like no you're coming here you're coming to a five-star place we got you we're going to take good care of you so i can see both sides of that um i think the bottom line is we have to think about how we're going to be Received and try to inspire confidence in the people, you know, confidence that people have for us That's in the right. service that we're going to provide. Whether, you know, I'm trying to sell my services to, you know, a researcher or a grant mechanism or, you know, to a patient that I'm going to consent for a study. Right. And and that's it also gets back to like what you're talking about, this intergenerational mentoring that making sure that we as leaders and senior faculty members convey to the next generation and learners, this is not a personal thing, Carissa. I'm not trying to have this conversation with you because it's something about you personally. It's an orientation that this is the culture coming out of COVID. I know we're all this, but when we are here, this is the expectation. These are the, the boundaries. This is the way we live and do business around here. And so here is the here are the policies around this, that, or the other. Universally well, applied. You know. And to also say, you know, if you adhere to these policies, it's going to help you be more successful, you know, right. with the patient or with your right. colleagues or your And explaining the why. I mean, to yeah. me, it's like the way you describe that, I think there's a big difference between say, saying, Carissa, I see you're wearing those sandals again. No, oh, no sandals. And then walking away like, what is her deal with my sandals? Versus saying, hey, I noticed you got those nice sandals on there, but, you know, the policy is no, no, no open toe because some, you know, there are sharps, there are heavy instruments, da, 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 da. Oh, now I get it. Not, it's not like she's just a jerk. She's looking for my armpit for some reason. No, there's a, <laughs> this is a policy because, the because, the help, because I'm making an assumption, right. well, she knows darn well why. Maybe she doesn't know why. Or maybe she doesn't know why that that white coat conveys authority. And then that will, you know, let me explain that to her. So then, yeah. So the the other thing that I struggle with a little bit is uh, trying to explain why it is important for people to come back and work in the research office in person. Mm. And so, uh, because, you know, it's so convenient, you know, with, and comfortable to be at home and all these things. But it's, you know, getting that um, inspiration from a casual conversation, right? Or um, being able to just come over and say, hey, Chris, I have a quick question. Can you help me? And then right. I, and then we just scoot the project along, you know, more efficiently. Yeah. Um, so I said we, we have that, not only that, but the, even 
this sounds dumb, but like the gossip or overhearing things and not Mm -hmm. like gossip, like juicy gossip, but how many times would you be working or walking or in a classroom or in a hallway or in cafeteria line and just hearing conversations gives you ideas. So it's not like the gossip about like dirt about somebody, but you learn, you learn what's happening Oh, absolutely. Ideas at for different study. levels. Yeah, yeah. It just you, you and when you when you're not getting that, you think, well, I didn't need all that stuff anyway. No, that's a lot of context that can be important for you to know personally as a as a department, as a division, as a center, as a unit. And then gauging and engage, like peep around the corner. What was that occurrence? I couldn't help it over here. I just heard you told so and so about the meeting and such and such. What's happening there? I didn't know hear about that. What was that? So all that kind of culture stuff that you miss. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also, you know, for folks who are learning how to communicate on Zoom, you know, there's a lot of jokes about the delay, you know, and how do I read body language? When am I, when, oh, I should stop talking now. You know, if you're, your people, I, I've definitely noticed this with my more recent um, trainees uh, where they're, they're not getting the nonverbal cues like other, you know, previous trainees have. Um, now I know there's always like, you know, different levels of, of that emotional, social intelligence there, but, um, but I'm definitely seeing it in higher levels. So, and I think then that is also leading to this avoidance of conflict in certain situations, which is that situation that I dealt with. And then when I had to like force, you know, the situation, we had a group meeting, be like, Hey, we need to talk this out. And someone just wanted to stop. They just didn't want this anymore. And I said, no, 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 no. We gotta just we just gotta lance this and 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 get it get it all out in the open so that we can move forward. This isn't about blame. This isn't about you know mm-hmm. punishment or anything like this. Let's we just gotta move forward. You don't have to like each other, but you do have to work together. You have to respect each other. Ugh. So you know, trying to to move past like a lot of you know miscommunications that I think are coming out of this very difficult social period. Mm-hmm. And then letting them know, like, that's part of my job is to help you guys get through this. And that that, I love that, Chris. I love that you're sharing that kind of when you said, no, we're not going to avoid this, that we're not going to just end meeting and click out of the Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) The doors have been locked. They would not be allowed to open during flight. Everyone's (laughs) buckle in because you are not we're not landing this plane till we get through this turbulence. So I, I like that. That is another really important thing of teams. And yeah, you can build teams. And we, I'm sure there are industries right now who, who would be laughing, going, well, we've been working remotely. We, I've never met people. They're in halfway around the world or they're in NASA. They're in a different planet. Yeah, we work well. Thank you very much. And yet, as human beings, yeah, those nuances of body language and tension, you can't, it's hard to feel that on, on virtually. So yeah, I imagine there's going to be a lot maybe some more anxiety around being with other people because we're just a group of people who the past three years have not learned that and not gotten comfortable with that. And now even post COVID when you've got their supposed colleagues or mentors who aren't even coming in regularly, like they, like they used to, there's not as much opportunity. So even if they do get shoved back into fill in the blank, the clinic, the lab, the committee meeting, the whatever, the faculty meetings, even, you know, people are still remoting in and hybriding in. And so it's going to be a tough bunch of years. It'll be interesting to see how the next generation of academics and faculty members work through 
these years of not having had that foundation like many of us did of being in a group in in community with each other that we may have lost some of that the art of medicine just by not being around each other yeah and I mean, and this is something, I mean, right now we're really talking about these folks who uh, experience this acutely, you know, coming through. So in medical school, perhaps an undergrad transition to medical school, medical school transitioning to being resident. But I think we really have to be paying attention for those of us who, you know, anticipate being in the field for another 10, 20 years um, and look at how this data that's coming out of elementary schools and, you know, middle schools, what are, what is what is these learners experience and how is that very difficult experience at a very early age going to impact them as our future doctors, our future surgeons and, and researchers? Because, I mean, there's uh, some crazy behaviors that they're seeing where, you know, people who the kids who are sitting in remote learning, um, they can get up whenever they want and use the restroom or get a snack or get a drink. And then they're doing that in the classroom as well. And then the teachers, you know, don't have power over this dynamic anymore to really do effective disciplinary action. And I, and I realize I'm going way earlier in the pipeline here, but I think we're definitely going to see this coming through. Um, Fair. That's really fair, Carissa. That's a really good observation. What will, are we going to end up with a, you know, cohorts of young professionals who can just like, check out they don't have the the focus or the attention span i mean they add and then add another layer of social media and tiktok and instagram and that kind of scrolling kind of um fast hitting adrenaline hits that they're bored they're like i'm checking out just stand up and leave (laughs) out of that they can't or it's be there be a certain level of discomfort or being uncomfortable in group settings with i don't know on patient doing rounds or in a auditorium or in a professional conference or that they just get disengage, you know, just get mm-hmm. up and leave. And when things yeah. get dicey or the temperature gets hot, just right. you know, swipe left. Or having a, a lower, you know, ability to have that difficult conversation, right? right. The, the patient's passing away and you have to deliver that news to the family or you have a serious interpersonal you know, problem, miscommunication with a colleague, um, you know, what are, what are those kinds of interactions going to look at or look like, you know, moving forward? Yeah. We have to be mindful of that and and think of strategies. And again, all coming back to testing assumptions, testing our own assumptions, taking a moment to build relationships. And then it sounds like there's lots of opportunity for people like you and me to come up with a new new ways of reorienting the older generation as well as the younger generation to come to these compromises to keep the high standards of patient care and research and science and discovery and writing and all those things. So interesting job security, right? (laughs) Job security. Well, Carissa Cooney, did you have anything else you wanted to um, share with us today on bridging the gap, the post-COVID intergenerational mentoring topic? Well, I think uh, there's one other thing I'd like to add, and it's just this expansion in the uh, medical education space, both in uh, UME and GME, so undergraduate medical education and graduate medical education, and that's the implementation of entrustable professional activities. And this this may help this uh, better understanding of uh, making sure 
we're um, getting people to the point where they're meeting all these different things, we can tick them off more easily. Um, but, you know, when we have people who continue to have these gaps, just because, you know, that six months that they were supposed to be on this rotation, they actually had to be at home and got flipped to, you know, reading and research projects. Um, they may continue to have that gap coming out. And so how do we get them back mm. up to speed? Because, you know, they're not demonstrating that they're entrustable on that clinical skill or those surgical procedures. Yeah, it is, take a moment. What current, uh, Carissa, what is the entrustable professional activities? What does that mean for those of us so, who don't do it in education? That way. It's a it's an interesting concept where they're trying to break up uh, complex procedures or complex interactions, right? Like, oh, well, go see the patient, figure out what's wrong, and report back to me. That's not three things, right? That's more like potentially twenty different things. And so, trying to break up that um, you know clinic uh, interview um, into chunks. Uh, so that you can assess, well, how well did you uh, parse out like a differential diagnosis? How well did you, um, you know, do the background of the patient, uh, establish like medical history, you know, do these different things. Okay. Um, and so then you can tick those different things off. That's more specific, say, to medical school. And then, you know, in the surgery space, it's like, how well are you doing the surgery? How well are you um uh, orienting the patient in terms of like the risks uh, and potential benefits of the procedure, you know, these kinds of things. So what so. you're saying is that that um, competency umbrella, if you will, because of changing from scoring to pass fail because of COVID, they there are literally cohorts of students out there who didn't get this or didn't do that. And they were passed through. And now there may be subpar. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think it's that we're trying to convert over you know, entrustability is where we want to graduate people, right? In medical school and particularly in residency so that they're capable of, you know, independent practice. And so if we don't feel that they're entrustable, why is that? Is that because they had a curricular gap because mm. of pandemic situation uh. and because the educational environment, medical education environment is training us towards entrustable professional activities you know, perhaps we're setting up a certain number of people to fail in this space. It's definitely an evolving situation. Um, but when we're looking to entrustability and we're using, you know, assumptions and biases or, you know, our past experience to judge this, are we really being fair? And what else can we do to help get these folks up to speed given this crazy, um, you know, mm. shared experience that we've been through? Yeah, gosh. And now I'm going to go back on another one of my tangents that gets to diversity. And this may be a, a nutty metaphor, but if somebody makes the major league, so if you get, say, football players and they get drafted, they're in the NFL, they get to the team. Let's just pick any team. Let's just say the Pittsburgh Steelers, just for no no reason whatsoever. Other than that they're my favorite team. So they get to the Steelers. They were drafted to the Steelers or on the Steelers team, but they came from different backgrounds or different schools and high schools and colleges that had varying degrees of resources and coaching and equipment. And, and they're good enough to get to the Steelers. And yet there's an assessment of just gaps. Like you can't assume that everybody who gets to that, that, that caliber has the same level of 
you know, boxes having been checked because they're coming from different backgrounds and you, you can't assume that they all speak the same language or maybe they had a great, you know, strength coach, but they didn't have a good flexibility coach or da 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 da. So right. that's what it you're that's what it seems to me that we're all getting to the place, but we're getting there different ways. And so you can't make assumptions mm-hmm. that well, if you got here, um, you're just like me. No, you you got here, you deserve to be here, and yet you have different strengths and opportunities. So let's let's make sure we're all at the same starting line before we, you know, pop the starter pistol off and take off. Hang on a second. <laughs> let's make sure are we all um do we all have the right shoes on and equipment <laughs> and, and let's train each other up to make sure that we're all on the same team, equipped, ready, and now we could go versus making that assumption that, well, how could you not have known that? Didn't you come from, you know, Stanford? Didn't they teach you that at Stanford? Uh, you know, whatever. You get me get my point, right? Yeah. No, it's it, it's a crazy uh, educational landscape right now. Yeah. So good stuff. Okay, folks. This was Carissa Cooney, associate professor here at Hopkins. Good stuff, right? You can get a hold of Carissa Carissa by emailing her at C Cooney, C C O O N E Y three at jhmi.edu or just go to the facultyfactory.org and you'll see Carissa's face and a description of this podcast episode and any other topics you want to present to bring to or sponsor um, some friends and colleagues to be on the podcast. Just send us an email and we'd be happy to have you on. Thanks, Carissa. Again, you're wonderful. Thanks for all your ideas and for sharing you yourself and your wisdom with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Hi, everyone. It's Kim Skorupski in the Faculty Factory. Just a big thank you for being a part of this vibrant international community where we all share our tools to build academic leaders. Did you know that the Faculty Factory podcast for almost five years now, dropping episodes every Friday, has had almost 70,000 downloads and YouTube listeners from 84 countries? We're waiting to learn from you. Would you please shoot me an email so that we can record your episode? Or maybe you'd like to sponsor someone else to be on the podcast? Our email address is facultyfactorykim at gmail. The address at Hopkins here is kskarupski. That's K-S-K-A-R-U-P-S-K-I at J-H-M-I dot E-D-U. And yes, all the episodes on the Faculty Factory podcast are also on our YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel and the YouTube channel is sorted into buckets for your easy viewing. Let me look at these buckets and tell you what they are. Discussions with deans, communication, general faculty development podcasts and interviews, promotion and tenure, reunion episodes from great speakers from the past and guests from the past. The Habits and Hacks from Hopkins, we recorded that during COVID when we were all kind of hunkered down. Self-awareness and self-management, leadership, networking, research and scholarship, and mentoring and coaching. So again, that's on the YouTube channel. Then did you also know that the facultyfactory.org website has drawn almost 37,000 visits from users in 122 countries? If you go to facultyfactory.org, We've put together a lot of resources for everyone to share. Not only will you see the podcast, but under resources, we have coaching resources. We have our eBooks. 
We have all the institutions. Yes, if you're listening from any other institution, any school of medicine in North America, your institution is listed there under resources with a link to your office of faculty development or faculty affairs. If we have the wrong address, give us an update, but that's a really neat way of seeing all the schools in North America. We have related affiliate organizations, so the Association of American Medical Colleges, affinity groups, and other partner groups that you might be interested in that do faculty development. And then scholarship, we have a link on tons of scholarship around faculty affairs and faculty development, so you could check that out as well. And then we have a blog, and there's there's places to contact us on the website as well. So facultyfactory.org, you can um, send an email directly through the website. We also have a Faculty Factory Twitter channel. You might want to join us there. And then we have two free ebooks. We're working on the third, spoiler alert, but two free ebooks you can send to all your colleagues, friends, faculty members, learners, trainees. One is called the Snippets for Success. That's all of you around the country who shared your tips and tricks for being successful in academic medicine. That's a free ebook sitting there waiting to be downloaded. As well as, again, during COVID, we did habits and hacks from faculty members here in Hopkins. They shared their wisdom around how they built their careers, how they overcame certain hurdles and challenges. That's another ebook you can take a look at and share with friends. So thank you again for listening to the Faculty Factory podcast, for being a part of our community. Will you please tell someone today about the Faculty Factory podcast? These Faculty Factory efforts are supported by the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and our wonderful Vice Dean for Faculty, Dr. Maria Oliva Hemker, and you, our loyal patrons who share our passion around the world for faculty career and professional development. Thanks, everybody.